God. Dear Lord, we're grateful for your word and we're grateful for this place we have. Thank you for all the care and the hearts that uh, watch over the things that need to get done. The various improvements. Uh, we don't act like other churches, but uh, we trust that you will be good to us and how casual this is, but uh, thank you again for it. Thank you for your word this morning. In your son's name, amen. At some point, Jacob is going to be pouring some self-leveling concrete in the basement with Brian's help. I don't know if other help would be beneficial, potentially. So maybe when we get it scheduled, we'll let you guys know that something guys do will be happening. Um, We're in uh, 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4. I love these, love these uh, types of passages where Paul wraps it up for you. says, okay, this is what I want you to think about in toto. This is your life. This is what you should be about. And the Thessalonians are one of those unusually well-placed group of believers, you know, they, they seem to have kind of like, you know, if I knew the Philippians, I'd like the Philippians. I wouldn't like the Galatians, but I would like the Philippians. I would like the Colossians, I wouldn't like the Corinthians. You know, you have these sorts of uh, notions. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, we're going to go through all that chapter and a little into 5, there is Paul is just sort of front-loading the basic thing. Why don't you pay attention to this? Finally, brethren, we beseech and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you learned from us how you ought to live and to please God, just as you are doing, do so more and more. There is a... There is a oughtness that should have been, and I trust it was in your lives, communicated from the very beginning. What you learned when you read through the Gospels, what you learned when you read through the Apostles, how you ought to live, how to please God, assuming that you're doing it, he says, just as you are doing, this makes me say, I like these Thessalonians, they're doing the Christian life, and then he says, you ought to do so more and more, which was my father's admonition at the end of any hard task that we had to perform spiritually, he'd say, do so more and more. Now, once you figure out what the Christian life is about, once you find the path to achieving it, what it is, that you're doing it, that you know that the rest of your oughtness, the rest of your oughtness ought to be the practice of getting more of that accomplished. It wasn't enough that they knew, and it wasn't enough that they did. They ought to be encouraged to do so more and more. They weren't wrong for not having done the more yet, but that's what our lives are, is the building more on what we've already arrived at. I was thinking, I, I didn't put it in the notes, but the, there's a, 
was a movement in political circles called the alt-right, you know, that it's sort of the smash mouth, um, edgy, secular right wing. And we ought to be the ought right. That what we ought to, how you ought to live to please God. And that we represent the oughtness that every man has before the living God. That your life ought to be an example of what that oughtness achieved looks like. How could we even recommend in these gospel moments with various people we're witnessing to, how could we recommend it if, is it just because the series of claims are so tender and we could put that on a poster with soft enough focus that women will cry when they see it? That if you write love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, good, with loopy script, hearts over the eyes, and everybody go, oh, I'm an awful person, but I like that list. We don't want awful people to claim Jesus Christ. We want people who are loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, gentle, who are that way. How we ought to live, to please God, just as you are doing, so we, you should have figured out some of the mechanism of this task, that you might also do it more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Oh my goodness. I mean, you don't have that kind of pastor here. I don't, you know, didn't travel with the Lord Jesus, nor am I inspired, but St. Paul was inspired, met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and the Lord appeared to him in, in Arabia and various other things, gave him instructions to give to these Thessalonians through the Lord Jesus. Big deal. It's a big deal. For this is the will of God. Well, okay, you hike up your pants and you get out your note cards. And you say, this is the, because people come to you all the time, I'm wondering what the will of God for me is. Well, here we go. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. God wants you holy. So, how are we supposed to view that? We could have all sorts of views of it. I, I imagine there's as many as there are people here in the room. But as long as we all agree that the aim of God, the will of God, is that you be holy. That's, that's what he wants to arrive at. That how we ought to live to please him is that sanctification. To one degree or another, you are doing it, and you can do it more. All those play into it, but sometimes people say, they stop right there. This is the will of God, your sanctification. And then you can invent all kinds of pieties that will arrive at that sanctification. Paul's handling of it is your sanctification that you abstain from unchastity. You know, sex, where you're not supposed to have it. I mean, this is not, you say, this, Paul, this is not the time, nor is it the place. This is too much information. We don't write letters where we say, okay, this is the Christian life. Quit sleeping around. 
This is the will of God. Now, what's interesting is this whole first paragraph, from down to verse 8, seems to think that you need to figure out sex. Did you get it right? Because it says that you, the, the will of God for you, the, the, uh, uh, the instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, your sanctification is tied up in this, and you, you think that, you know, back before 1965, they didn't know what it was. Well, one, you ought to read a little history, and then read a little literature, and then read a little ancient literature, and go all the way back to about 1700 BC and read a little more literature and find out, my gosh, these are people. And they, uh, they are uh, about the deed and doing it immorally, sometimes religiously immorally. Cult prostitution was standard, where you'd worship your God sexually. Paul's not writing this in some sort of innocent vacuum. And I, you notice I pronounced both U's. He didn't go, you know, this will come in handy after 65. This will come in handy once the Beatles are done singing and, and we, all the young people are dancing and gyrating to rock and roll and getting physical. People have always been physical. And the warning is, and anybody who thinks that it's not the case already doesn't know something. That each one of you know how to take a wife for himself in holiness and in honor. You need to know what's going on. Do you know how to? Because I'm, here is Paul saying this, and you can go, if there was a Christian bookstore in town, you could go to it, and you could probably find a section that told you all different theories of dating or courtship or whatever else is going on. All of them claiming to know how. Do you know how to take a wife for yourself in holiness and honor? Because it's important since the will of God for you in this sanctification is that you stay out of sexual trouble. Sexuality is not merely a uh, I want to say an occasional possible crime. It's not just an occasional threat. It's sort of like everywhere. Everywhere you look, everywhere you are. And again, it doesn't matter what point in history you're in. It's so human. It's, so desi it's designed by God. It's so human. And you better know what you're about. But not in the passion, verse 5, not in the passion of lust, like the heathen who do not know God. So there's a way of saying, you know, if I don't have this figured out, Leslie and I were, had a lot of time talking when she wasn't sleeping in the car. Um, on the way back from Boise, we talked a lot about the seminar and what we were running into. And you, you basically have um, a lot of people making very bad decisions. And then, about five years later, they show up on your phone, your porch, going, what did, can you fix this? Well, first off, let's confess you being an idiot. 
We'll confess it together. Lord, I confess that this guy's an idiot. Because he chose in the passion of lust. He thought that beauty was godliness. He thought that, that love makes the world go round. He thought it was romance. Romance, well, love conquers all. There's, there's quotes. But you're not following quotes. You're following the Lord Jesus. And he says, the will of God for you, your sanctification, is that you abstain from unchastity. Get that figured out. That you know what this is about sufficiently that you could choose a wife. And that is, Paul has already recommended in other circumstances, that you not choose one if you are not interested in sex. So it's saying the interest in sex, and Timothy, it says, wrote you not to touch uh, a woman. I think it's Timothy. Um, no, it's Corinthians. Uh, it's well for a man not to touch a woman, but because of the temptation to immorality, let each man have his own wife and each woman her own husband. God's answer to immoral sex is moral sex, not celibacy of the priesthood. It's not asceticism. This person knows how to take a wife because he wants to know how to arrange the sexuality. And he doesn't want to make his decision based on the sexuality. Do you got that? It's a sexual decision, not based sexually. He said, you know how to choose a wife for himself in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust. So somehow I've got to make a decision that is for the sex, but not by the sex. That sounds like uh, some speech by Abraham Lincoln. For the people, by the people. For the sex, not by the sex. It's important. It is, in counseling, it is a crisis. It's the thing most people are stupid about. And they think they're adult enough to make a decision because they went through puberty. And they think that's qualification. Go out and make a decision that they should never have made. Then they realize in 10 years they shouldn't have made it. And then they want to know what to do. Mostly they want to know how to fix the other person. How to make them quit being such a pain. Confession would be in order when the Lord told you that you should have done your sanctification has to include this. Where you, you might say, went home and did a study, biblically. Not about what the Trinity is like. It doesn't say, you know, the first thing you need to know is what the chief end of man is. Or what all the points of the Apostles' Creed are. No, it's sex. Because it's almost like, you got to take care of that, folks. You've got to admit, this is my sanctification, is sitting right there in that category. I am told that it's really important. God wants it a certain way. And then he says that no man transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we solemnly forewarned you. It's not just, you know how to abstain from immoral sex, you know how to get real moral sex. You should be self-controlled, not driven by the passion of lust. And it's because of a deep fear. For the Lord, he tells you, why does someone transgress a brother in this matter? This is probably about primarily adultery. 
because he's making decisions in the passion of lust like the heathen who do not know God. He does not know how to take a wife for himself or a husband for herself. And you've got to remind yourself the Lord is an avenger. Solemnly forewarned you. This is a, a deep, deep fear. This should be an elevated arena. And an elevated arena that you know you're going to have to, as you marry and you're going to practice this, this act the rest of your days as long as you both shall live, you better get it right, not wrong. You better fix it if it is wrong. Because you got the Lord to fear. And it's very, very... You know, the, the Roman Catholics and the, uh, the early ones coming out of Gnosticism and the anchorites in the wilderness who all thought that somehow it was that uh, was it uh, oh, it wasn't Belloc it was uh, never mind I don't know who it was the, the, the awful suspicion that someone somewhere is having a good time that's the definition of a Puritan it was also a definition of any early Catholic that you shouldn't be having a good time and sex was one of those enjoyably good time things that God gave man to draw man and woman together to give us a cause to be together. He separated woman from man so he'd wander back, made woman the weaker vessel so that she would have need of him. We don't, only immature men think that they are uh, actually attractive. Um, but women see it differently. But those are all things that you are going to have to take into consideration that the Lord is a policeman in this area. C.S. Lewis is big on Christianity fully engaged with thick aspects of the faith. That there's not, it's not all clear. There's thickness and clearness. And Romans is clear. To me anyway. Romans is clear. Very clear argument, forms, knows what he's talking about. This is thick. This is saying, you know, a big part of your Christian life is that. And the Lord is the policeman of that. And you better fear him as you were solemnly forewarned. And then he says, therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Do you understand this is not churchiness. This is not a church that says, you know, that skirt's a little short. We're not that kind of church. We're not the, uh, some churches locally have invaded against body piercings that are not traditionally approved by the uh, Star Chamber. Um, that, you know, we all know that good Christian women can get holes punched in here, but not here. Or here. Or here. But we're not that... <laughs> We believe that these things are functional. We're not, we're not solemnly forewarning you to look at the ground when an attractive woman goes by. But we're warning you to learn how to not make decisions by your lusts. To not be a passionately moved individual. You've heard me say before that passion is the reward, the punctuation, not the verb. Have the reasoning of God that each one of you know how to take a wife 
That is something you've got to figure out. You've got to understand the concepts. Your God is the God who made it. Your God is the God who polices it. And he avenges himself. And you don't always know. You don't always know. When you won't be thrown in a situation that just wreaks havoc with your moral code. Suddenly you find yourself in love with somebody you shouldn't be in love with. Yikes. And you don't know what to do. But you've always run your life by your passions. Maybe you ought to go back and say, admit that this is a really big, this is a big category in the Christian life. Big category. And God holds a very big opinions. And he has a design format. He has instructions about how I should pick up and address it. And it's not by priestly celibacy. It's by finding your way to a wife, which is saying, for the sex, not by the sex. It's a deeper religion. What I love about these passages is it, it tells us, without 2,000 years of Christian, you might say, the misbehaving traditions of the church where they they decide it's going to be a certain way, you're always going to teach this this way. I want you to come away with this passage with, you want to say, a clear, you know, when I'm supposed, pastor said I'm supposed to think about sex a lot more. Say, don't say that to outsiders, by the way. They might think we're some kind of cult. But, but there's other things, it's not just that, but that's a big thing you say, I'm, I'm supposed to know how this, and if I'm already married, I better go back and figure out if I'm thinking wrong about any of this because I don't want to go through the rest of my life making a fool of myself when God has such avenging qualities about him regarding it. How you ought to live, your sanctification threads right into that. Verse 9, and you, are, you were already supposed to kind of know this. Of course, these were Thessalonians. They had been taught by the Apostle Paul, founded by Apostle Paul on his journey. Um, he says, verse 9, but concerning love of the brethren, first, I want you to know how you ought to live. Okay. Watch the sex issue. Two, how about the love of the brethren? The broader life Apart, you so the, the the small residue of life that isn't sex. Okay, we've got relationships with each other. Sitting in this room with people I would never hang out with if I didn't know the Lord. Maybe all of you, except the the misses and my children, grandchildren. Concerning love of the brethren, you have no need to have anyone write to you. Well, I keep, keep saying that, sir. You know, as you've learned from us, you don't need to have anyone write to you about love. The Holy Spirit's one trying to make love in you. For you yourselves have been taught by God. Have you? You yourselves... Stop and say, these are regular Christians in, a, you know, ancient pews. They probably, you know, made out of rock or something. Instead of wood. 
listening to this going, you know, the, the, God has taught me to love one another. Concerning love, what, what am I supposed to be? This is a big part of, of our lives, right? Because the whole new covenant is on love. That it fulfills the commandments. We don't have to look at the law of Moses because the love taught to us by God fulfills all the commandments. You've been taught by God to love one another and indeed you do love all the brethren throughout Macedonia. But we exhort you brethren to do so more and more. There's never enough good. There's room for more good. It's sort of like goodness is not a zero-sum game. This is, not, this is like capitalism. The more capitalism you get, the more value you get. More money is created. You don't say, well, there's $10 trillion available in the world and we've got to take it from these people to give it to those people. You can create more. Goodness is the same way. You can do this more. You can be more loving. Now, just like with the, you know, God's will for you, your sanctification, right? Yeah, which, which was nice and spirit. And the love of God. Right? Love of God, right. right. First thing in the fruit of the spirit, you know, the Corinthians 13, nothing greater than love. And you go, yeah, I, I can see the, the Facebook post already emerging in my mind's eye from your aunt who wants you to pass it on lest Jesus be disappointed. Concerning love. Yeah. I mean, how many, I mean, does it usually make you feel a little bit better every so often to hear the pastor, you know, just talk about the love of God? And you feel, just the use of the word. The use of the word is great. Um, but like with the sanctification thing, the will of God, your sanctification, then it said, sex! Concerning love for the brethren, you've been taught by God, indeed you are, do so more and more, comma, verse 11, to aspire to live quietly. This is what it looks like. Okay? It's not having a graphic T that has the word, you know, love on it or the biblical phrasing love is patient or the reference if you want to be subtle 1 Corinthians 13 it's not you having the common usage of it it's that you by love in your relationships to one another you have an aspiration to live quietly this is how you're filling the rest of your time when you're not studying sex You can have two notebooks. There's a little, uh, I don't know, there's a model black and white things you got in school. They have little blocks you can write. You can write sex on one, and then the other one can say the remainder of the time. Okay? You can have notes in both about you knowing how to choose a wife, keep a wife, honor God, fear God, and also that you would know how to love. Live quietly. I love this next one. To mind your own affairs. Now, ladies, so why do you say ladies? Because women, dear heavens. How many times did the Lord have to say, 
shut the heck up about other people's business. I know it sounds like prayer request time, but my gosh. Nobody wants to know. No one wants you to fix it. Leave it alone. Now, that wonderful passage Kenny read a few weeks ago in Peter, where it lists murder, robbery, and busybodies. <laughs> and I, for one, would rather have you be a murderess than a thief, maybe. There's some honor in that sort of criminality. Some manly blood on the ground, but there's this busybody stuff, this not minding your own affairs. You've got a lot to think about. You've got a, you've got a, you've got a will. You've got this body, this collateral thing. We talked a little bit about it at Drones yesterday because I'm wandering off into other heresy right now. And uh, that will is, is more primary than your actuality. And this is just the puppet, the marionette of your will. And you've you got to answer for what it did. On the last day, it's, uh, it talks about the judgment and one of the judgments in Revelation, it says they'll be judged by what was written in the books by what they had done. You have got to give an answer for what you arrived at, what you made this body do. As it ran around, think about sex on this part, and think about all the other stuff on that part. Were you clear and godly in one, and were you loving this way? Where you took responsibility for your own affairs and didn't Always move into other people's stuff. It's called gossip. Live, aspire, an aspiration to live quietly. I almost want to go have a conference, if I could afford it, or invite all the important Christians in the country who are all trying to make as much noise as they can about whatever. Just say, you guys are supposed to aspire to live quietly. And just like I told the ladies to shut the heck up about being busybodies, the men who want movements and, and excitements and, and everyone driving about everything else and, and being excited and showing that, that Jesus can punch you in the face just as hard as Muhammad, maybe harder. Do you have, even have an aspiration to live quietly? I'm not suggesting being a Trappist monk. Those are the guys who have vows of silence. Which some of you I'd suggest that for. But, and I don't even think they're right. But a vow of silence would be... Mind your own business. And to work with your hands. As we charged you. The apostles are in town. When they're in town going, you know... God is really strict about sex. He wants you to do it right. You better get it right. And two, do you have a good job? Are you, are you working quietly in your own affairs in an adult way about your own life? Work with your hands, applying your will to your labor. You know who's on the last day and for whose decisions you're going to be judged. So often we like to be busybodies because it keeps our minds about what other people's wills are doing with their lives. Now, I, I, because I'm in the ministry, I, I get to hear more problems than I want. Um, it, it stops being entertaining after a while. But some people are very entertained by it. If for nothing else, they're not thinking about what rat bastards they are. Because somebody else, did you see 
what they did, said, acted like. Don't you think we should do something? All sorts of phrasing. Listen to yourself. Have your husband, wife tape you some day. Just, just walk around with a little recorder. Play it back that night as you prayerfully eat your ice cream together and listen to you. Be busy bodies. Work with your hands. That will, uh, that will be you applying your will to your labor. It's not so much important that, that somehow these hands, unless I'm picking up a brick and moving it to here, but that, or, or a housewife, you know, kneading dough. You know, does it have to be hands? What does it mean? Your natural rule is your natural body. It's a natural place for your will to find the extent of its will. Do you ever, you ever realize that? that? That when I choose to have my back scratched by my wife, I, I can't just will it. I have to actually tell her. And then she has to decide if she's going to do it. Because I don't have direct, my own hands I have control over. But I'm so chubby now I can't get my arm back anywhere near where it needs to be scratched. But that's what, you know, you have an adult usage of the things that you are doing with yourself. As we charged you, that you may command the respect of outsiders. Look at the... We oftentimes, okay, no, we're going to cause a big stink in the, in the United States about for Christian cultural values, family, no abortion. And we're going to make it look like the hippies. Actually saying, you know, those outsiders, those hippies, had better have a good impression of you. Do they? Do, they, do, you, do you command the respect of the communists? Paul did. I mentioned that to you before, where in Ephesus, when he, the riot's going, he's got friends who are Caesar priests, priests of the emperor, who are friends of his, it says. You realize that how you measure these things ought to be, okay, this love thing is not me writing myself a blank check to be as involved in other people's business as possible. It's supposed to be living quietly, minding your own affairs, working with your hands, and getting a good resume built with unbelievers. And to be dependent on nobody. So that you are not, that your, your honor is clear to everybody. This is what people admire, non-believers admire, who don't know and believe in Jesus Christ at all. They look at somebody who works an honest day, <coughs> minds his own business, wants quiet and peace in his existence. That's the Christian life. I, there's this, you say, well, yeah, there's other passages in the New Testament that tell us about more things, yeah. But this is a pretty comprehensive instruction about what you spend your time on. God wants your sanctification, so get the sex thing worked out. God wants you loving, so get your, you know, the nature of your quiet worked out. Because maybe you're not defining it correctly. If you think love is noisy. 
Maybe you don't have love viewed correctly if all of it does is make your church disliked by everybody. Makes you disliked. Um, what's that old line from uh, C.S. Lewis? I gave it to my mother as a bookmark once. She appreciated it. She says it was, she was the kind of woman who lived for others. You could tell the others by their hunted expression. None of those women thought they were becoming those women. None of those moms realized they were becoming those moms. We've got work to do here. This is Christianity where this is not God is the avenger of things. God wants us to be taught to live this way. Get it right. Because this is the average Joe Christian stuff. You say, maybe an individual like John the Baptist or someone would be called. Everybody thinks they're John the Baptist. Nobody thinks they're a regular Christian out of Thessalonica. But most of us are regular Christian out of Thessalonica. Pew 3. Get a good reputation with outsiders. Do you have one? But we would not have you ignorant, brethren. And I'm going to cruise through this fast because I'm at the end of my time. I'm not going to touch. This is an end times thing. Say, like, oh my gosh, what a passage. Sex, mind your own business, end times. What could be better? This could be like a whole semester of very well attended classes. Concerning those who have fallen asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Remember, our Christian life is forgiveness of sins and life eternal. We just looked at what forgiveness of sins is lived like, gets your relationships worked out, both biologically and relationally, and the hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the archangel's call, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. It's a wonderful passage. It's poetically driven. And that's what I want you to think of it as because just as many views about end times are possible here. I don't know what you think that passage is talking about. But it was given to us that we therefore comfort one another with these words. That the cry of command, the archangel's call, the Lord will return. And we will be always with the Lord. I don't know how you structure your end times views. I'm not really interested. I'm interested in you having comfort in the apostle, lifting it up, that you understand what hope is. Not what hope isn't. Hope isn't you figuring out which author to read with the charts that tell you everything that's going to happen over the next generally 10 years in their minds. Because hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? That's Romans 8. 
But as to the times and the seasons, brethren, you're not supposed to be ignorant that it's coming, that it's, that it's to be spoken of and enjoyed, the Lord's return. You don't have to have a view. You just have to have a Lord returning. And it's more of a question of your condition when it happens. What does this, what does the, this encouragement mean to you? Just like what did the love just what did sanctification mean? Sex. What did the love mean? Shut up. What did the end times mean? Get all worked up about the beast of Revelation? As to the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need to have anything written to you. Oh, by the way, I want to see someone write a book. Maybe in this church. Make a million dollars. We don't have to mean it. But we're going to title it The Last Trump. We can't let this go by without an end times book. Never mind. Everyone would buy it. Fifteen bucks each. Just thinking. Ask the times. You have no need that anything be written to you. For you yourselves now. Well, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When people say there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as travail comes upon a woman with child, and there will be no escape. Those ladies here who have born children know that there's no way you can hold your knees together and keep that kid from coming out. Once the kid decides to come out, it's coming out. And that's what it's going to be like. Suddenly, I just feel like some ice cream. Fifteen minutes later, there's a baby. I want you to think about what is it telling you to be like regarding this. It's not saying, because all these words, oh, thief in the night, I've heard that before. Wasn't that a movie? Yes, it was. Very bad movie. We look at various parts the trumpet call, the dead in Christ rising first, which, which pretty soon you've got a little index card and you're making a graph. And trying to figure out, are you a dispensationalist? Are you a millennial? What are you? What does the text here tell you to be? It's going, to, it's going to come like a thief in the night. We know it's going to be sudden. We know it's whatever this is, it's going to be sudden. But you are not in darkness, brethren, for that day to surprise you like a thief. So you're not supposed to be surprised. One. You say, I take that, take that home. Not surprised. For you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. What is the metaphor? The lights are on for you. What does that mean? I can take data in. If I don't have any, if it's dark, I don't have any idea what's going on. I can see what's happening. And soberly so. That means, what's the difference between a sober person and a drunk person? Nighttime, it says here in the next line, those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. So we're not of the night. We're children of the day. We, we, we're supposed to be holding this a certain way. Soberly. That your world is connected. All the rules fit. All the responsibilities are met. If a man has had a couple of beers, but he can meet all of his responsibilities and still make all the right connections, he's not drunk. 
It's not the amount of beer, it's what he can do. And this is not a lecture on drunkenness. This is what sobriety is. You are sober in that you are not affected by the darkness or by the chemistry to not see and be able to function in your world. You are unsurprised because you see and you measure clearly, soberly, not fantastically, not hilarious, hilariously, not, not emotionally, not passionately, but soberly. Since we belong to the day, verse 8, let us be sober. Keeps repeating that. Hold your parts and your pattern together. You're in the light, you're in the day, you're awake in it, you see what is, not what is not. And then it says, in that sobriety, there is a martial, looks like he does in Ephesians. Um, but since you belong to the day, let us be sober and put on the breastplate, see, of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So much like the Ephesians passage, very brief, but he steps into it defensively. He just says, you know, this is, you know, most of our life is um, not changing the world for Jesus. You are not told to change the world for Jesus, nor are you challenged to change the world for Jesus. You're supposed to be faithful. You're supposed to do what you're told. You're supposed to structure your life accordingly. And you guard yourself with faith, love, and hope. What you believe, how you act, what you think about the world, what you offer them, what you give to the world, and, and what you see in as the storyline for your life. You see a future. They, they have no God or hope in the world. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation for our Lord Jesus, through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we wake or sleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. This is, again, people who had heard some of these things, were doing them already, need to do them more. It's all for encouragement. Encourage one another with these words. Comfort one another with these words. Build one another up by re recognizing the task we have as saints to live a life of love, to live a life of faith, to live a life of hope, which has the right, not Christian culture responses to hope, which is going to the next seminar with big glowing four horsemen of the apocalypse on the poster. It's for you to be saying, well, I can see what's going on. I don't know when it's going to happen. It'll be a thief in the night, but it's not going to surprise me. Because I see the world as it is. I'm sober in response to it. Whether we wake or whether we sleep, I think he's referring back to the people in the early part of four where he talks about those who are fallen asleep. That, that kind of sleep, not those who sleep in the darkness. But that whether you're dead, whether you die as a Christian, or whether you're um, awake, you might live with him. We have to remember that all of it is personal. Not merely, uh, it's not religion in a sense of doctrines, it's somebody. It's through the Lord Jesus Christ, for God, and don't forget it. All the different things that you want to see, 
if you're trying to help other people in the church or you think, I don't think that should be going on, introduce them more to the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't try to fix them to your way of doing things. Introduce them to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit will do what needs to be done in them. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful. Keep us close to your son. We'd ask that you would be continuing to be merciful to us and that when we are doing those right things that we ought to be doing, that we'd also be encouraged to do it more and more. That we have really enjoyed singing your praises together, Lord. We'd like to have our lives be that kind of credit to you and your son in this town. In your son's name we pray. Amen.